section twenty seven of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter eight period of the restoration sixteen sixty seventeen hundred the age of french influence history of the period it seems a curious contradiction at first glance to place the return of charles the second at the beginning of modern england as our historians are wont to do for there was never a time when the progress of liberty which history records was more plainly turned backwards the puritan regime had been too severe it had repressed too many natural pleasures now released from restraint society abandoned the decencies of life and the reverence for law itself and plunged into excesses more unnatural than had been the restraints of puritanism the inevitable effect of excess is disease and for almost an entire generation following the restoration in sixteen sixty england lay sick of a fever socially politically morally london suggests an italian city in the days of the medici and its literature especially its drama often seems more like the delirium of illness than the expression of a healthy mind but even a fever has its advantages whatever impurity is in the blood is burnt and purged away and a man rises from fever with a new strength and a new idea of the value of life like king hezekiah who after his sickness and fear of death resolved to go softly all his days the restoration was the great crisis in english history and that england lived through it was due solely to the strength and excellence of that puritanism which she thought she had flung to the winds when she welcomed back a vicious monarch at dover the chief lesson of the restoration was this that it showed by awful contrast the necessity of truth and honesty and of a strong government of free men for which the puritan had stood like a rock in every hour of his rugged history through fever england came slowly back to health through gross corruption in society and in the state england learned that her people were at heart sober sincere religious folk and that their character was naturally too strong to follow after pleasure and be satisfied so puritanism suddenly gained all that it had struggled for and gained it even in the hour when all seemed lost when milton in his sorrow unconsciously portrayed the government of charles and his cabal in that tremendous scene of the council of the infernal peers in pandemonium plotting the ruin of the world the king and his followers of the king and his followers it is difficult to write temperately most of the dramatic literature of the time is atrocious and we can understand it only as we remember the character of the court and society for which it was written unspeakably vile in his private life the king had no redeeming patriotism no sense of responsibility to his country for even his public acts he gave high offices to blackguards stole from the exchequer like a common thief played off catholics and protestants against each other disregarding his pledges to both alike 
broke his solemn treaty with the dutch and with his own ministers and betrayed his country for french money to spend on his own pleasures it is useless to paint the dishonor of a court which followed gaily after such a leader the first parliament while it contained some noble and patriotic members was dominated by young men who remembered the excess of puritan zeal but forgot the despotism and injustice which had compelled puritanism to stand up and assert the manhood of england these young politicians vied with the king in passing laws for the subjugation of church and state and in their thirst for revenge upon all who had been connected with cromwell's iron government once more a wretched formalism that perpetual danger to the english church came to the front and exercised authority over the free churches the house of lords was largely increased by the creation of hereditary titles and estates for ignoble men and shameless women who had flattered the king's vanity even the bench that last strong refuge of english justice was corrupted by the appointment of judges like the brutal jeffreys whose aim like that of their royal master was to get money and to exercise power without personal responsibility amid all this dishonor the foreign influence and authority of cromwell's strong government vanished like smoke the valiant little dutch navy swept the english fleet from the sea and only the thunder of dutch guns in the thames under the very windows of london awoke the nation to the realization of how low it had fallen revolution of sixteen eighty eight two considerations must modify our judgment of this disheartening spectacle first the king and his court are not england though our histories are largely filled with the records of kings and soldiers of intrigues and fightings these no more express the real life of a people than fever and delirium express a normal manhood though king and court and high society arouse our disgust or pity records are not wanting to show that private life in england remained honest and pure even in the worst days of the restoration while london society might be entertained by the degenerate poetry of rochester and the dramas of dryden and wycherley english scholars hailed milton with delight and the common people followed bunyan and baxter with their tremendous appeal to righteousness and liberty second the king with all his pretensions to divine right remained only a figurehead and the anglo-saxon people when they tire of one figurehead have always the will and the power to throw it overboard and choose a better one the country was divided into two political parties the whigs who sought to limit the royal power in the interests of parliament and the people and the tories who strove to check the growing power of the people in the interests of their hereditary rulers both parties however were largely devoted to the anglican church and when james the second after four years of misrule attempted to establish a national catholicism by intrigues which aroused the protest of the pope note guizot's history of the revolution in england End of note. 
as well as of parliament then whigs and tories catholics and protestants united in england's last great revolution the complete and bloodless revolution of sixteen eighty eight which called william of orange to the throne was simply the indication of england's restored health and sanity it proclaimed that she had not long forgotten and could never again forget the lessons taught her by puritanism in its hundred years of struggle and sacrifice modern england was firmly established by the revolution which was brought about by the excesses of the restoration french influence literary characteristics in the literature of the restoration we note a sudden breaking away from old standards just as society broke away from the restraints of puritanism many of the literary men had been driven out of england with charles and his court or else had followed their patrons into exile in the days of the commonwealth on their return they renounced old ideals and demanded that english poetry and drama should follow the style to which they had become accustomed in the gaiety of paris we read with astonishment in pepys's diary sixteen sixty sixteen sixty nine that he has been to see a play called midsummer night's dream but that he will never go again to hear shakespeare for it is the most insipid ridiculous play that ever i saw in my life and again we read in the diary of evelyn another writer who reflects with wonderful accuracy the life and spirit of the restoration i saw hamlet played but now the old plays begin to discuss this refined age since his majesty's being so long abroad since shakespeare and the elizabethans were no longer interesting literary men began to imitate the french writers with whose works they had just grown familiar and here begins the so-called period of french influence which shows itself in english literature for the next century instead of the italian influence which had been dominant since spencer and the elizabethans one has only to consider for a moment the french writers of this period pascal bossuet fenelon malherbe corneille racine moliere all that brilliant company which makes the reign of louis the fourteenth the elizabethan age of french literature to see how far astray the early writers of the restoration went in their wretched imitation when a man takes another for his model he should copy virtues not vices but unfortunately many english writers reverse the rule copying the vices of french comedy without any of its wit or delicacy or abundant ideas the poems of rochester the plays of dryden wycherley congreve vanbrugh farquhar all popular in their day are mostly unreadable milton's sons of belial flown with insolence and wine is a good expression of the vile character of the court writers and of the london theatres for thirty years following the restoration such work can never satisfy a people and when jeremy collier note jeremy collier sixteen fifty seventeen twenty six 
a clergyman and author noted for his scholarly ecclesiastical history of great britain seventeen o eight seventeen fourteen and his short view of the immorality and profaneness of the english stage sixteen ninety eight the latter was largely instrumental in correcting the low tendency of the restoration drama End of note in sixteen ninety eight published a vigorous attack upon the evil plays and playwrights of the day all london tired of the coarseness and excesses of the restoration joined the literary revolution and the corrupt drama was driven from the stage new tendencies with the final rejection of the restoration drama we reach a crisis in the history of our literature the old elizabethan spirit with its patriotism its creative vigor its love of romance and the puritan spirit with its moral earnestness and individualism were both things of the past and at first there was nothing to take their places dryden the greatest writer of the age voiced a general complaint when he said that in his prose and poetry he was drawing the outlines of a new art but had no teacher to instruct him but literature is a progressive art and soon the writers of the age developed two marked tendencies of their own the tendency to realism and the tendency to that preciseness and elegance of expression which marks our literature for the next hundred years realism in realism that is the representation of men exactly as they are the expression of the plain unvarnished truth without regard to ideals or romance the tendency was at first thoroughly bad the early restoration writers sought to paint realistic pictures of a corrupt court and society and as we have suggested they emphasized the vices rather than virtues and gave us coarse low plays without interest or moral significance like hobbes they saw only the externals of man his body and appetites not his soul and its ideals and so like most realists they resemble a man lost in the woods who wanders aimlessly around in circles seeing the confusing trees but never the whole forest and who seldom thinks of climbing the nearest high hill to get his bearings later however this tendency to realism became more wholesome while it neglected romantic poetry in which youth is eternally interested it led to a keener study of the practical motives which govern human action formalism the second tendency of the age was toward directness and simplicity of expression and to this excellent tendency our literature is greatly indebted in both the elizabethan and the puritan ages the general tendency of writers was towards extravagance of thought and language sentences were often involved and loaded with latin quotations and classical allusions the restoration writers opposed this vigorously from france they brought back the tendency to regard established rules for writing to emphasize close reasoning rather than romantic fancy and to use short clean-cut sentences without an unnecessary word we see this french influence in the royal society note 
the royal society for the investigation and discussion of scientific questions was founded in sixteen sixty two and soon included practically all the literary and scientific men of the age it encouraged the work of isaac newton who was one of its members and its influence for truth at a time when men were still trying to compound the philosopher's stone calculating men's action from the stars and hanging harmless old women for witches can hardly be overestimated End of note which had for one of its objects the reform of english prose by getting rid of its swellings of style and which bound all its members to use a close naked natural way of speaking as near to mathematical plainness as they can dryden accepted this excellent rule for his prose and adopted the heroic couplet as the next best thing for the greater part of his poetry as he tells us himself and this unpolished rugged verse i chose as fittest for discourse and nearest prose it is largely due to him that writers developed that formalism of style that precise almost mathematical elegance miscalled classicism which ruled english literature for the next century note if the reader would see this in concrete form let him read a paragraph of milton's prose or a stanza of his poetry and compare its exuberant melodious diction with dryden's concise method of writing End of note. the couplet another thing which the reader will note with interest in restoration literature is the adoption of the heroic couplet that is two iambic pentameter lines which rhyme together as the most suitable form of poetry waller note edmund waller sixteen o six sixteen eighty seven the most noted poet of the restoration period until his pupil dryden appeared his works are now seldom read End of note. who began to use it in sixteen twenty three is generally regarded as the father of the couplet for he is the first poet to use it consistently in the bulk of his poetry chaucer had used the rhymed couplet wonderfully well in his canterbury tales but in chaucer it is the poetical thought more than the expression which delights us with the restoration writers form counts for everything waller and dryden made the couplet the prevailing literary fashion and in their hands the couplet becomes closed that is each pair of lines must contain a complete thought stated as precisely as possible thus waller writes the soul's dark cottage battered and decayed lets in new light through chinks that time has made that is a kind of aphorism such as pope made in large quantities in the following age it contains a thought is catchy quotable easy to remember and the restoration writers delighted in it soon this mechanical closed couplet in which the second line was often made first note following the advice of boileau sixteen seventy six seventeen eleven a noted french critic whom voltaire called the lawgiver of parnassus End of note, almost excluded all other forms of poetry 
it was dominant in england for a full century and we have grown familiar with it and somewhat weary of its monotony in such famous poems as pope's essay on man and goldsmith's deserted village these however are essays rather than poems that even the couplet is capable of melody and variety is shown in chaucer's tales and in keats's exquisite endymion these four things the tendency to vulgar realism in the drama a general formalism which came from following set rules the development of a simpler and more direct prose style and the prevalence of the heroic couplet in poetry are the main characteristics of restoration literature they are all exemplified in the work of one man john dryden john dryden sixteen thirty one seventeen hundred dryden is the greatest literary figure of the restoration and in his work we have an excellent reflection of both the good and the evil tendencies of the age in which he lived if we can think for a moment of literature as a canal of water we may appreciate the figure that dryden is the lot by which the waters of english poetry were let down from the mountains of shakespeare and milton to the plain of pope that is he stands between two very different ages and serves as a transition from one to the other life dryden's life contains so many conflicting elements of greatness and littleness that the biographer is continually taken away from the facts which are his chief concern to judge motives which are manifestly outside his knowledge and business judged by his own opinion of himself as expressed in the numerous prefaces to his works dryden was the soul of candor writing with no other master than literature and with no other object than to advance the welfare of his age and nation judged by his acts he was apparently a time-server catering to a depraved audience in his dramas and dedicating his work with much flattery to those who were easily cajoled by their vanity into sharing their purse and patronage in this however he only followed the general custom of the time and is above many of his contemporaries dryden was born in the village of aldwinkle northamptonshire in sixteen thirty one his family were prosperous people who brought him up in the strict puritan faith and sent him first to the famous westminster school and then to cambridge he made excellent use of his opportunities and studied eagerly becoming one of the best educated men of his age especially in the classics though of remarkable literary taste he showed little evidence of literary ability up to the age of thirty by his training and family connections he was allied to the puritan party and his only well-known work of this period the heroic stanzas was written on the death of cromwell his grandeur he derived from heaven alone for he was great ere fortune made him so and wars like mists that rise against the sun made him but greater seem not greater grow in these four lines taken almost at random from the heroic stanzas 
we have an epitome of the thought the preciseness and the polish that mark all his literary work this poem made dryden well known and he was in a fair way to become the new poet of puritanism when the restoration made a complete change in his methods he had come to london for a literary life and when the royalists were again in power he placed himself promptly on the winning side his astrea redux a poem of welcome to charles the second and his panegyric to his sacred majesty breathe more devotion to the old goat as the king was known to his courtiers than had his earlier poems to puritanism in sixteen sixty seven he became more widely known and popular by his anus mirabilis a narrative poem describing the terrors of the great fire in london and some events of the disgraceful war with holland but with the theatres reopened and nightly filled the drama offered the most attractive field to one who made his living by literature so dryden turned to the stage and agreed to furnish three plays yearly for the actors of the king's theatre for nearly twenty years the best of his life dryden gave himself up to this unfortunate work both by nature and habit he seems to have been clean in his personal life but the stage demanded unclean plays and dryden followed his audience that he deplored this is evident from some of his later work and we have his statement that he wrote only one play his best to please himself this was all for love which was written in blank verse most of the others being in rhymed couplets during this time dryden had become the best-known literary man of london and was almost as much a dictator to the literary set which gathered in the taverns and coffee-houses as ben jonson had been before him his work meanwhile was rewarded by large financial returns and by his being appointed poet laureate and collector of the port of london the latter office it may be remembered had once been held by chaucer at fifty years of age and before jeremy collier had driven his dramas from the stage dryden turned from dramatic work to throw himself into the strife of religion and politics writing at this period his numerous prose and poetical treatises in sixteen eighty two appeared his religio laici religion of a layman defending the anglican church against all other sects especially the catholics and presbyterians but three years later when james the second came to the throne with schemes to establish the roman faith dryden turned catholic and wrote his most famous religious poem the hind and the panther beginning a milk-white hind immortal and unchanged fed on the lawns and in the forest ranged without unspotted innocent within she feared no danger for she knew no sin this hind is a symbol for the roman church and the anglicans as a panther are represented as persecuting the faithful numerous other sects calvinists anabaptists quakers were represented by the wolf boar hare and other animals which gave the poet an excellent chance for exercising his satire 
dryden's enemies made the accusation often since repeated of hypocrisy in thus changing his church but that he was sincere in the matter can now hardly be questioned for he knew how to suffer for the faith and to be true to his religion even when it meant misjudgment and loss of fortune at the revolution of sixteen eighty eight he refused allegiance to william of orange he was deprived of all his offices and pensions and as an old man was again thrown back on literature as his only means of livelihood he went to work with extraordinary courage and energy writing plays poems prefaces for other men eulogies for funeral occasions every kind of literary work that men would pay for his most successful work at this time was his translations which resulted in the complete aeneid and many selections from homer ovid and juvenal appearing in english rhymed couplets his most enduring poem the splendid ode called alexander's feast was written in sixteen ninety seven three years later he published his last work fables containing poetical paraphrases of the tales of boccaccio and chaucer and the miscellaneous poems of his last years long prefaces were the fashion in dryden's day and his best critical work is found in his introductions the preface to the fables is generally admired as an example of the new prose style developed by dryden and his followers from the literary viewpoint these last troubled years were the best of dryden's life though they were made bitter by obscurity and by the criticism of his numerous enemies he died in seventeen hundred and was buried near chaucer in westminster abbey works of dryden the numerous dramatic works of dryden are best left in that obscurity into which they have fallen now and then they contain a bit of excellent lyric poetry and in all for love another version of antony and cleopatra where he leaves his cherished heroic couplet for the blank verse of marlowe and shakespeare he shows what he might have done had he not sold his talents to a depraved audience on the whole reading his plays is like nibbling at a rotting apple even the good spots are affected by the decay and one ends by throwing the whole thing into the garbage can where most of the dramatic works of this period belong poems the controversial and satirical poems are on a higher plane though it must be confessed dryden's satire often strikes us as cutting and revengeful rather than witty the best known of these and a masterpiece of its kind is absalom and achitophel which is undoubtedly the most powerful political satire in our language taking the bible story of david and absalom he uses it to ridicule the whig party and also to revenge himself upon his enemies charles the second appeared as king david his natural son the duke of monmouth who was mixed up in the rye house plot paraded as absalom shaftesbury was achitophel the evil counsellor and the duke of buckingham was satirized as zimri the poem had enormous political influence and raised dryden in the opinion of his contemporaries to the front rank of english poets two extracts from the powerful characterizations of achitophel and zimri are given here to show the style and spirit of the whole work shaftesbury 
of these the false achitophel was first a name to all succeeding ages cursed for close designs and crooked counsels fit sagacious bold and turbulent of wit restless unfixed in principles and place in power unpleased impatient of disgrace a fiery soul which working out its way fretted the pygmy body to decay a daring pilot in extremity pleased with the danger when the waves went high he sought the storms but for a calm unfit would steer too nigh the sands to boast his wit great wits are sure to madness near allied and thin partitions do their bounds divide else why should he with wealth and honour blest refuse his age the needful hours of rest punish a body which he could not please bankrupt of life yet prodigal of ease and all to leave what with his toil he won to that unfeathered two-legged thing a son in friendship false implacable in hate resolved to ruin or to rule the state then seized with fear yet still affecting fame usurped a patriot's all-atoning name so easy still it proves in factious times with public zeal to cancel private crimes the duke of buckingham some of their chiefs were princes of the land in the first rank of these did zimri stand a man so various that he seemed to be not one but all mankind's epitome stiff in opinions always in the wrong was everything by starts and nothing long but in the course of one revolving moon was chemist fiddler statesman and buffoon then all for women painting rhyming drinking besides ten thousand freaks that died in thinking blessed madman who could every hour employ with something new to wish or to enjoy railing and praising were his usual themes and both to show his judgment in extremes so over violent or over civil that every man with him was god or devil of the many miscellaneous poems of dryden the curious reader will get an idea of his sustained narrative power from the anus mirabilis the best expression of dryden's literary genius however is found in alexander's feast which is his most enduring ode and one of the best in our language prose and criticism as a prose writer dryden had a very marked influence on our literature in shortening his sentences and especially in writing naturally without depending on literary ornamentation to give effect to what he is saying if we compare his prose with that of milton or brown or jeremy taylor we note that dryden cares less for style than any of the others but takes more pains to state his thought clearly and concisely as men speak when they wish to be understood the classical school which followed the restoration looked to dryden as a leader and to him we owe largely that tendency to exactness of expression 
which marks our subsequent prose writing with his prose dryden rapidly developed his critical ability and became the foremost critic note by a critic we mean simply one who examines the literary work of various ages separates the good from the bad and gives the reasons for his classification it is noticeable that critical writings increase in an age like that of the restoration when great creative works are wanting End of, note. of his age his criticisms instead of being published as independent works were generally used as prefaces or introductions to his poetry the best known of these criticisms are the preface to the fables of heroic plays discourse on satire and especially the essay of dramatic poesy sixteen sixty eight which attempts to lay a foundation for all literary criticism dryden's influence on literature dryden's place among authors is due partly to his great influence on the succeeding age of classicism briefly this influence may be summed up by noting the three new elements which he brought into our literature these are one the establishment of the heroic couplet as the fashion for satiric didactic and descriptive poetry two his development of a direct serviceable prose style such as we still cultivate and three his development of the art of literary criticism in his essays and in the numerous prefaces to his poems this is certainly a large work for one man to accomplish and dryden is worthy of honor though comparatively little of what he wrote is now found on our bookshelves End of section twenty seven